Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you would like to support the show, you can do so through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month. If you don't want to support the show financially, that's totally awesome. You can also uh, share this episode or leave a review below. It won't take very long and it really does help people um, find this podcast if it's a podcast worthy to be found. My guest today is Elizabeth Black. Um, Elizabeth Black is the co-founder and president of Kaleidoscope uh, Ministry, a uh, missions organization that's aimed at reaching the LGBTQ community, or according to her own mission statement here, it's providing LGBTQ people opportunities to engage with tangible expressions of Christ. I had a wonderful engaging conversation with Elizabeth. We talked about um, uh, her journey. We talked about bisexuality. We talked a lot about Jesus. And then we uh, spent the last 40 minutes or so talking about Kaleidoscope and the work she's doing there in New York City, which led to some very interesting and engaging conversations about faith and sexuality. So please welcome to the show for the first time, my new friend, Elizabeth Black. All right, hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm here with Elizabeth uh, Black. Uh, Elizabeth, I first saw you at Revoice. Like the first, that's where I first came across you, and you yes, actually yes. killed it in your talk. I'm like, who's that? I'm like, oh, you haven't met Elizabeth yet. I'm like, no, but I, I want to. And then you came out to the Theology in the Raw conference, which was so awesome to meet you there in person for all of eight seconds or whatever. Um, yeah, but it's, you were a little busy. You were a little busy. It's little, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was a whirlwind experience. But uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm excited to get to know you more. And uh, why don't we just start with your, I always have people kind of tell their story. And um, we'll, and then I would love to, at some point, get to your ministry, Kaleidoscope, which is a fairly new uh, thing you guys started out there in New York, which sounds really interesting. Um, so yeah, let's, who is Elizabeth Black? <laughs> Yeah, well, thanks, Preston, for having me. Um, it's funny that you say, you know, you you heard me at Revoice and was like, who's that? Because I, the whole time I was at Revoice, I thought no one knows who I am at all. Like, I don't even know why I was asked to speak here because I am a complete stranger, but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I, my feeling is strangers are just friends I haven't met yet. So right. I, I felt like I was in good company. Yeah. So yeah, Elizabeth Black. Um, I grew up in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, in kind of the county podunk area. Um, a lot of people when I tell them I grew up in Baltimore, they're like, Oh, yeah, like the wire. Um, and I'm like, No, not like the wire at all. If you watch that HBO show, that is not right. That was not my upbringing. <laughs> um, I, um, my background is uh, ethnically. I'm half uh, Mexican-American, half African-American. Hmm. Uh, but where I grew up was almost exclusively either like white evangelical, um, you know, upper mm -hmm. middle class. Or, so I was always very much a minority hmm. in, my, in my upbringing. But really loved it, actually. I think because I came from a multi-ethnic background, I just felt it was always really natural to hang out with people who are different from me and kind of uh, appreciate other people's like stories and, and ethnic backgrounds. So what was interesting is that though I grew up in, in a Christian home, uh, kind of came to faith when I was about seven, uh, church was an, a big part of my life, grew up in a Southern Baptist church. Mm -hmm. Because our community was also so Jewish, mm -hmm. I 
fell in love with the Jewish community and kind of learn more about the Jewish religion and the Jewish story. So at about 14, I was convinced that like God was calling me to to do Jewish ministry in some capacity and particularly in like the the realm of evangelism okay. and discipleship. So um when I graduated from high school, went to Bible college and spent a lot of my time at Bible college, um, kind of back and forth, actually, in Israel, oh, doing wow. internships there and, um, you know, doing different short term missions trips because that's, you know, where my heart was. Joined a synagogue like when I when I fall <laughs> in love with something, I'm all in. Um so, so yeah, that was really my trajectory and, uh, met my husband, uh, who is a Jewish believer in Jesus. Oh, wow. So it was a match made in heaven. <laughs> and, um, shortly after we graduated, got married and then started on the mission field here in the States, um, but doing work among Jewish populations. Okay. So that's what I had been doing before I started Kaleidoscope really for about about 12 years um, wow. and really loved it. It was a great, great field. Um, but what's interesting is kind of how it brought me to where I'm at now is that the last three years of my ministry, I noticed that so many of the Jewish people I was sharing the gospel with, talking with, kind of having these building relationships were asking questions about sexuality, huh. faith, gender, identity, spirituality. And I didn't really have a good answer. I didn't really, I didn't have a natural place to have that conversation. And I knew like something's missing here. You know, we, I spent so much time of my life contextualizing the gospel to a Jewish audience. However, you know, now there's kind of this new nuanced part of the audience that I don't really know how to talk to in a way that that they would feel, you know, would be helpful for them. Mm. So I spent the last three years of my ministry at it within the Jewish community, contextualizing or learning to contextualize the gospel to a Jewish LGBTQ audience, Oh wow! Um, which was very niche in and of itself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but there are, you know, it's crazy. Like in the time that I was doing this, I discovered, you know, through research and stuff that uh, one out of seven Jewish people identify as LGBTQ, hmm. um, which is a huge part of the population. Um, and there's because the Jewish community uh, tends to outside of like Orthodox and ultra Orthodox communities as a whole, they tend to be really uh, more of a liberal kind of mm -hmm. embracing community, socially liberal. So they had they were like a million steps ahead uh, mm -hmm. of kind of where the Christian world was and where I was in my ministry. Um, so it gave me a really great learning space, you know, to go into these Jewish contexts, these Jewish LGBTQ contexts and learn what's going on in the community. Okay. So that's, that's kind of where I started and what, what ended up leading me to kaleidoscope. Obviously okay. there's more to the story, but yeah. that's a good start. At <laughs> yeah. Well, where, I'm curious, where, where'd you go to Bible college? I went to Washington Bible college. So it's not, it was a small college. Unfortunately. Yeah. Lancaster ended up buying it out oh, okay. maybe five years after I graduated. Um, it's, it's affiliated with Capital Bible Seminary, so I don't know okay. if you know Capital, but is that Mark, Anyways, Mark Dever? Yeah. Mark Dever or no? 
I don't think so. No, no. capital. I'm, Bible I'm also bad with names. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Me too. Me too. Um, was it like a Southern Baptist or conservative Bible college or? No, I mean, I think it had um, Baptist or Southern Baptist roots, but by the time I was going there, it was a pretty old school. By the time I was going there, um, it was non-denominational. Uh, okay. So, you know, there were professors from all kinds of theological positions and backgrounds teaching, which I loved because it gave me a very right. diverse, yeah, you know, education. So I, I've been to, I studied in Israel for fall of 1999 and have been back a few times. I absolutely nice. love it. Love it. So where did you study? It was with uh, my, the college I went to master's university, it was master's college back then. They had a whole like yeah. uh, semester in Israel program where you go and you basically get a, you take classes there, you know, they had a whole campus. Wow. Um, just was it 15 miles west of Jerusalem. Um, and okay. uh, yeah, so it was, it was so cool because I was able to like really soak it in being there for four months or three and a half months, whatever. And totally. it was amazing. Oh my gosh. I loved it. Fell in love with, yeah, the culture. I mean, obviously studying the Bible in Israel is unbelievable, but I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I fell in love with just Middle Eastern culture. Like I actually love hearing the Muslim prayers over the loudspeaker and everything mm. and like just the smells of the old city and just the. It's just so unique, the Middle Eastern culture, and I just fell in love with Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I love it so much. It's totally different from like what people would expect, I think, who haven't mm -hmm. been there or who are familiar with like Jewish American culture. Right. It's like a totally different animal. Um, but I really love it because I, I feel like people are very open and honest and very blunt. And it, so it makes conversations really fun because okay. no one's trying to like you know just yeah. be nice to you for for niceness yeah. sake <laughs> it's so relational so, yeah. it's so relational i love seeing you know old men playing backgammon and drinking coffee all day smoking outside their shop and just you anytime you want to just engage in a conversation it's just that's what people do it's just so relational you know um, yes yeah. yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah it was great i we ended up my family and I, we were there a few years back and we basically lived there for like a semester oh, wow. um, doing outreach in Jerusalem. And okay. I, after that time, I was convinced. I was like, I want to live here. This is amazing. Uh, but New York has its perks, too. It, yeah. <laughs> there's lots of Israelis here, too. And, you know, it's a good place to visit. It's a hard place. I think it would be a hard place to live. It is. Um, yeah. But. But yeah, I mean, I'm thankful for my time in Jewish ministry. And my hope in many ways is that even in Kaleidoscope, that part of that isn't over um, yeah. because there's such a huge LGBTQ population among mm -hmm. Jewish people. Uh, but, you know, I it's it's part of what I have been reflecting on in my in that part of my story mm -hmm. is the idea of sentness um, mm. and just thinking about how I was you know, I was recently reflecting and I was like, God, was all of, was that 12 years just, was mm. it self-motivated? Was it fake? Like, what were you doing? Mm. Like now I'm, I'm working with LGBTQ people and I'm like, so immersed in that culture. Mm -hmm. Why did I spend 12 years doing something else? And it just, I felt like the Lord was reminding me that sentinous is like where he places you. Hmm. It's not necessarily like always this grand calling where you have to move across, you know, state lines or across the the world, you know, to really 
follow where, where God is leading you. But I think something that I've really realized is like God put Jewish people in my life um, really intensely for a season and now has like set me like clearly open this path uh, to, to open my horizons to another, yeah. you know, audience and a really a group of people who I've, who are also very marginalized, misunderstood. Yeah. And like, quite frankly, I would call an unreached people group in many ways. The LGBTQ community? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So similar to, like, I see the similarities to my work with the Jewish population because not a lot of people are out there doing, like, work to Jewish Mm -hmm. audiences. You know, there's not tons of, like, missionaries in Israel. A lot of the ones that I know are missionaries towards, like, uh, Palestinian communities, which is amazing mm-hmm. and beautiful. Um, but I think a lot of people, even theologically, are a little bit intimidated or mm-hmm. don't know kind of where to place Jewish people in the whole story mm-hmm. of things. You know, I, I met so many people who told me, well, why do you have to share the gospel with Jewish people? They're going, they're God's chosen uh-huh. people anyway. So uh-huh. they have like the golden ticket, <laughs> um, which I'm like, Ugh, I, <laughs> I don't think that's how it works. <laughs> Salvation um, by so ethnicity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and I think there, there was also a level of intimidation. So I, yeah. I, I've learned a lot from my season in Jewish ministry. Yeah. Well, tell, sure. tell us about Kaleidoscope. What, what, what birthed this? What, what is it all about? Um, and yeah, I'm sure I'll open up all kinds of different conversation opportunities. Oh for us. yeah, for sure. So yeah, like I mentioned, um, my last three years in Jewish ministry really paid the way for me to want to start this. And a lot of it was, um, there was, there were a few people who really were inspiring, one of which was um, an intern at the time who was working with Jews for Jesus. Her parents uh, were missionaries history for like 30 plus years. So she grew up in this kind of messianic Jewish ministry world. Mm-hmm. Um, and for all intents and purposes, everyone just assumed like she's a Christian and she's like on the right path. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was interning for like five years and I struck up a relationship with her, started discipling her and noticed with every step forward, kind of towards a deeper relationship with Jesus, there was this massive like chasm that was like between her and and her faith. And I could see it, you know, but I didn't really, I could sense it, but I didn't really know what it was. Um, but you, it almost felt like a burden. Like I could see a physical weight on her back, um, Hmm. from, from something that was going on spiritually. And then eventually with like massive, you know, fear and trepidation, she had shared with me that, um, she was gay and that she knew she was gay all of her life. And she, the only voice that she could hear from God was the voice from her parents saying mm. that God does not, could not love her, does not love her, and that there was no way that she could have a relationship with him. Wow. So though she like desperately desired to follow Jesus with all of her heart and soul, it just she she just felt like there was no reconciling it. Um, and at the time, I felt completely ill-equipped to have a conversation, uh, like I said. And I I just, the best that I could do, which 
I feel like it's, it's still so great. And when I meet people who feel like they don't know what to do, it's always to say like, you know, don't let your, your sexual orientation, your gender identity, any other parts of you stop you from experiencing Mm -hmm. the good news of Jesus and like the goodness of God. Mm -hmm. Don't let it because he's not, he's not in the way. Like Mm -hmm. it's only kind of those, those fears that we have. So it, it only took you know, one, two conversations until Mm -hmm. I saw her open up and kind of take off those burdens. And obviously it was a process, but just immediately just being able to share her story and hearing other people affirm her as a person and as someone that God not only is capable of loving, but actually already does love. Um, I, you know, at that point she said, I came to faith. I didn't even believe, like, I couldn't truly believe in Jesus before. Um, And I came to faith. So just watching her grow um, and and then also seeing her experience massive rejection from the ministry that I was working with at the time because she wanted to um, she wanted to be open about her testimony as somebody who identifies as gay, believes in Jesus, mm-hmm. committed to a traditional sexual ethic, and was told that there was no room for her in the ministry. Wow. Um, and it was it was through that moment and though that circumstance, that relationship, and many others that I was just like, there's something wrong here. Mm-hmm. Like we we're, we're we're not doing something well as the church. Mm-hmm. where we we can't even really listen to people's stories, let alone trust the work of the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the process uh, of doing that, it, interestingly enough, when when she first came out to me and a few others did the same, I had this like this feeling in the pit of my stomach, like, oh no, God, what are you about to do? Because I knew that there was something about what she was expressing and what other people are expressing that was too close for comfort for me. Um, but I couldn't ignore what, where God was leading me, where I felt sent. So I just kept on, on the path, um, and then found revoice, uh, like you mentioned. And at one of the previous revoices, um, I don't even remember who was talking, what they talked about, but I heard the Holy spirit say, Elizabeth, you know that you've also experienced same-sex attraction all of your life and you've never been able to even say it. And it's true. I've never, I wasn't even able to pray to God about it. I used to say, God, you know, that thing that we don't talk about, wow. <laughs> uh, can you just take that away? That was about as close as it would get. Or, you know, I, I look forward to dying because once I die, then I'll be free from wow. this. That was the extent yeah. of my prayer. Um, and the Lord just invited me. Like he just said, you can be honest about your own experience now and trust that I'm going to be on the other side of that honesty, Mm -hmm. or you can keep it quiet between us and I will love you all the same. And I think this was the first time I even let him finish the the sentence. Like, (laughs) I think this is the first time I let him give me two options. (laughs) Um, And I just was like, okay, I'm ready to to take the leap. And I've seen the way he's loved others. And I trust that he can do the same for me. So now it's become, you know, it's not just for the sake of others, but there's a personal, a personal attachment to the experience as well. So, so this was just, I mean, how long ago was that when you were able to? Oh, kind of it voice? wasn't very long ago. 
Yeah, because Revoice yeah, hasn't been around I mean, that long. No, it was probably around, you know, I say it kind of embarrassingly. I think it was about three years ago, wow. which is crazy. I'm 35. And oh. I think one of the first things that I felt was like a sense of embarrassment. Like, Lord, why did I wait so long? Like, this is so embarrassing. Um, but I think like the the wisdom and grace from other people that I shared my story with was that, you know, everybody's story is different. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm almost grateful for it also because I think it's a testimony to our churches and Christian community that there are probably I know I'm not the other one, only one. You know, there are others, other grown adults. We're not just talking about like youth young adults, people who are trying to be trendy. Like this is not, I'm not trying to hitch on the trendy bandwagon of the LGBTQ culture, please. I tried to avoid it for most of my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, that the, these experiences are, are more, are, are, are more common, I think, than we, yeah. we think. Would you describe yourself? How would you describe yourself? I mean, um, I thought I heard you at Revoice say bisexual or is that, was that, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, that's no, okay. no, 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 I, that's correct. Yeah. So okay. I think, um, a, so part of my, my story experience and part of the reason why I could wait so late was that like, I had a very clear attraction to men okay. from, from the beginning of like puberty. So it wasn't, it was something that I could ignore because I had something in, in a sense, I had something to replace it. Do you, do you know what I mean? Sure, like sure, yeah, I could, yeah. I could suppress the attraction to women because my attraction to men was, right. was there and it was genuine. So, um, yeah. So I would say I identify as bisexual. Can you, if is, as much as you want to share, um, sure. my, our bisexuality can be very misunderstood. It can be kind of mysterious. It's, um, even within like, I'm, you know, in, in more academic, like psychological circles, you know, there <laughs> views range from like it doesn't exist to everybody's basically bisexual yes. on some level. And then you have the whole like female and bisexuality, which, you know, there's a decent number mm. of people who would say, you know, female sexuality already kind of lends itself to some form of bisexuality in a much, much higher percent percentage. Um, can you help? Can you just pretend like our audience has never even heard the word <laughs> bisexual? Sure. Can you maybe is yeah describe what what this experience is at least uh, you know i know people maybe experience it differently but according to your own totally totally yeah yeah well i think so one thing i was just sharing with a group of pastors the other day about this is there's a a common misunderstanding also between like bisexuality and pansexuality which yeah. are the two groups that are similar that are talked about a lot. So bisexuality is basically the umbrella term for anyone who experiences attraction to uh, their own gender and then a second or third or other gender. So it's not just necessarily, most of the time we, when people hear bisexual, they think, okay, you're attracted to men and women. For a lot of people, that's the truth. Yeah. Um, but like the truest definition is you're attracted to someone who is your own, or people who are, are your own gender and then a secondary gender. And that could be multiple or one or however. 
um, where pansexuality and and I think again just going back a distinction is also for for many people who identify as bisexual gender has to do with their sexual attraction so mm-hmm. like I'm attracted to my husband because of who he is and his soul and his spirit and his character and also the fact that he's a man mm-hmm. like his male form is right. a part of my attraction to him. <clears throat> whereas those who identify as pansexual often would say it is kind of despite gender identity that their attraction lives so the attraction kind of lives in this like it is i i'm attracted to the person their personality and it doesn't really ma- matter what gender identity they hold right, right. um so so that's a, a way of clarifying it yeah i think there's a lot of mis understandings around the experience there's a lot of people who would say you know it's a phase you know because when you're a teenager there's so many people questioning i that was one thing that was actually like such a relief to me was to hear my straight friends talk about how they also questioned their sexual identity at one point and i was like oh good i'm not alone (laughs) um but i think for for a lot of us, it's a persistent thing. Yeah. But even in that persistence, there's a lot of different experiences. So right. for me, I've noticed it kind of comes in waves. So um, so the, it, it, someone had explained gender identity like this for me, and this is great for for my experience too. It's almost like a dial. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes the dial is pointed really far up towards like female attraction. And then I find myself almost, I would find myself almost exclusively attracted to women. And then sometimes the dial is all the way to men. And then sometimes it's somewhere in the middle, a little bit here or there. So the, it kind of goes in waves where other people, it's always consistent. Um, They're always consistently attracted to men, women, transgender people, non-binary. So, you know, it's just different for different people. Um, but I think the consistent persistence of attraction is what distinguishes the experience. Okay. And I do think women tend to experience bisexuality at a higher rate than mm-hmm. than men. Well, I mean, just on an identity level, if you take just the I mean, the data is pretty clear. If you take the percentage of people who identify as bisexual females outnumber men, I, I don't have the number in front of me, but it's very much much higher and the younger you go the higher higher it is i mean the mm-hmm. i don't know the le- the latest study on that um i should know these numbers but um like teenage females who identify as bisexual are almost i i don't don't quote me on this but it's almost on pace or has almost surpassed mm-hmm. females that would identify as like straight you know um, yeah i mean it, it, it depends on your social environment too which that raises i don't know i don't know how mm. how, how deep in the weeds we want it get but i mean in your yeah in your experience have you noticed like how do you how do you well do we want to get it that the higher yeah, rates yeah. among <laughs> gen z well see, here's a so the latest um pew, uh, not pew what's the um gosh um i'm blanking on the the famous the the, the research they do every year anyway uh, uh 20.8 barna barna uh you know it wasn't barna? uh that's the christian one but there's um Gallup, maybe Gallup. Oh, it's the Gallup yes, poll. Yes. Um, it was in January, the latest one was 20.8% 20. 
of yeah. Gen Z identifies is that, that's LGBTQ. But even then, when you break it down, like how many of that percentage would identify as bisexual on some level? I think it was, I want to say more than 50%. Um, again, you can well, fact check all that, but no, 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 that that's, that's pretty accurate, at least as far as I know as well in doing the research, but it's actually very consistent the the fact that it's 25% of Gen Zers is much higher than, you know, my generation, right. millennials and above, which was like 5%. Right. right. Um, but but what is interesting is we bisexuals and people who experience like multi-attractions uh, attra- multi to just different genders, we take up about 50% of the LGBTQ right. accurate. You know, like we yeah. are, we're the biggest group within the LGBTQ world, which you don't really hear about. Um, so right. there's this whole concept of like bi erasure that because um, the experience, the people who are the bigger voices in, in the LGBTQ world tend to be either gay right. or transgender or lesbian you don't really hear very much from bisexual people. And I think when it comes to women or girls experiencing or seemingly experiencing bisexuality more, I think, you know, again, this is just my opinion and my experience, but I feel like because there is a sense of like a natural interconnectivity that women tend to have, like we we're just, really great at connecting with people in in a very natural way and can kind of hold a a network in that sense. Um, And I think also deep levels of of empathy. Mm -hmm. Um, I I have this whole theory that I think bisexual people are probably some of the most empathetic people in the world because because we, (laughs) you know, can really feel and relate to so many people and have that deep, you know, longing for connection. Mm -hmm. But I think when it comes to men, I think it's very societal and you alluded to it, mm-hmm. but I think it is more socially acceptable for women mm-hmm. to identify as bisexual than men. Right. Um, I think from one end of the spectrum that would say, well, it seems very greedy for men to identify as bisexual. Like it's, it's very much like the, you know, masculine kind of patriarchy that would say men can have everything um, <laughs> from that kind of perspective to the other side where it's like, well, it's demasculating for mm-hmm. men to identify as bisexual. And it's actually, you know, this is also part of, I think, some cultural issues that women are more sexualized mm-hmm. in our society. Therefore, it's acceptable for women to be bisexual right. because there's some kind of sexual appeal to the idea that women would want to be physically or romantically connected to other women. Wow, I have somebody, I really want to hear more about your ministry, but this is, this isn't. I, we'll get there. We'll get yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, cause I, th- for me, like pastorally, I, I get a lot of leaders, and especially the last couple of years, wanting guidance or just explanation on like half of my youth group is either bisexual or non-binary among the female population. Typically, um, what do I, what do I do? Or you know, it's it's um, how do yeah? Um, and I have been. I mean, in the past, I have been. This is going to sound. This is going to sound, this is going to come out wrong, but I'll just say it and clean up my mess later. Like I've been really fascinated at, well, I fascinated at the differences between male and female sexuality as a whole 
And when I say that, of course, I'm talking about generalities, not ex- ex- exclusivity. Sure. Sexuality is way more complex. But um, I mean, it's pretty well established now that, that female sexuality does have a certain level of fluidity to it. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'll say it one more time, not in every case, but on, on the on on the whole more than men. And and there's a blurriness, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I need to ask this as a question because I hear I'm talking to a female. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about female sexuality. Um, but like as people describe it to me, like the lines between an emotional attraction, an emotional draw, an intimate attraction, a sexual attraction, maybe a physical admiration, maybe even physical jealousy. I want that body. And then you throw in just the chaos of being a teenager and hormones and adolescence. You wrapped up wrap all that up into a ball, plant that in 2022 where there's all kinds of messaging on sexuality and explore and try. And it's like, I, I can't, I can't imagine being a 15 year old female with all that going on. And then, yeah, th- throw, throw that person into say a more progressive environment where, you know, um, where, yeah, you're, you're being encouraged to interpret things sexually, to explore yourself sexually if I'm, if the, all of that's somewhat true, then of course, m- many or most teenage females would say they're probably bi- bisexual. Because mm. the second you feel some kind of emotional spark when you look at another woman, where twenty years ago it might have just been like interpreted to like you just yeah you saw mm-hmm. another girl's body and you wish you had that body and you got a little emotional yes. like oh, but now if I feel like is there? Let me ask it: Is there? pressure or a push or draw to interpret some of those complex emotions through a sexual lens is, is that i'm yeah, gonna stop talking no, and let you, you go <laughs> no 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 i thanks for clarifying i hear you i my first thought is i don't envy teenagers who are growing up in this time and place now but at the same time, I don't know what's better. Like, I don't right. know if my context was really any <laughs> yeah. better. And I'll, yeah. I'll say that because, like, when I was about 13 and it became undeniable to me that I was having, you know, sexual attraction mm-hmm. towards other girls, um, I, I was at this crossroads of, like, do I pick God or do I, like, address or acknowledge my sexual attraction. And that was a lot for a 13 year old who was like really committed to Jesus. Right. So I, I was too afraid to tell anybody, but finally I thought it was going to explode. I came out to my mom and my mom's response was, you know, it's okay. Everybody feels that way. So it was a very like universal response where I was like, mom, I didn't know bisexuality was a thing. So I was like, mom, I think I'm gay. And she's like, you're not gay. And I was like, well, but I really like I I have a crush on my teacher. And I I was trying to really like it felt like bearing bearing it all, like explain to her, you know, when I hug her, I have these feelings. And when I'm with her, I want to hold her hand. And it's just like this very confusing thing. And she's like, she literally said, everybody loves a hug, Elizabeth. Everybody loves a hug. So at the time I was grateful. I was like, yes, like good. Apparently everybody's attracted to everybody, (laughs) you know, to any gender and good Christians choose the opposite sex. You understand? Mm-hmm. So like that, that's what I did. I was going to be a good Christian who, okay, this is a universal experience, but I will pick the opposite sex. So I think like for, 
for me, that was hard because then I spent the rest of my adolescence and adulthood not only kind of suppressing something. I I don't I didn't feel compelled to experiment. You felt nor um, you I felt know- normal, right? I Is felt that- normal-ish, but it was normal-ish. <laughs> but see, and, and your mom probably wasn't a, interpreting what was going on. Correct? It was kind of like because you really were feeling sexual oh, attractions. Yeah. It wasn't like oh, every girl, you know. Um, so yeah, that might but, not have been helpful. It's a hard distinction. Like mm-hmm. you were saying, you know, in your question, like, do you? do you interpret it as sexual attraction? Do you interpret it as, you know, emotional attachment or experience or friendship? Do you interpret it as jealousy? So I would say like, that was a constant thought in my mind Mm. throughout my whole life was before really coming out was like, okay, I'm looking at this woman, but am I looking at her because I think she's attractive or because I want her body because I want to have that body or because I like her clothes? And I always landed on, oh, it must be because I like her clothes, you know, or I want Mm. to have her figure because Lord forbid, I really, you know, acknowledge and be honest to myself that Mm. it it was actually something else going on. Yeah. It's it's so, it's, yeah, it, and my my ultimate motivation for even wanting to explore this more is I think that there needs to be some discipleship, better discipleship mm. um, in among teenagers <laughs> across yes. the board. I could end the just period, <laughs> but but especially I don't know there there is a unique need I think of teenage females in our youth mm-hmm. groups in our homes um, because you have you have the added theological piece here like okay if I have this feeling then what does this mean for my future and my faith and everything. So you have the added faith element, which should be beautiful, but can be very anxiety producing, unfortunately. Um, So I don't know. I just, I keep getting, yeah, leaders, they're just at a lot. Like, how do I walk with somebody who, the the many people now who are saying, I think I'm experiencing, you know, some form of bisexuality. Um, And it's hard because a lot of leaders, they don't even know what they're like. I don't even know what that means. Kind of like, kind of do, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't even know what to say, you know? Um, I don't know. I feel like the biggest thing that's lacking in the church as a whole, and then I would say probably, I mean, I haven't been in youth group for a very long time, <laughs> but is is that we just have a very warped approach to human sexuality, yeah. period. Right. So I think I never understood or was taught from a biblical perspective, what does it mean to be a sexual being? What does it mean that God has created me to have sexual desire? Mm-hmm. What does sexual desire even look like? What does it mean? So since that was never really explained to me, how could I distinguish, you know, and if it's still not being explained to teenage girls or guys today or or kids today, how can they really distinguish between this is my best friend Mm -hmm. versus I have a crush on this person Mm -hmm. versus I just idolize her as this like ultimate female figure. And I think something that I've I've heard many times from LGBTQ Christians particularly girls, is that now that they've come out maybe in their 20s or late teens, they look back and they're like, oh, that girl that I was 
friends with for three years, we were absolutely dating and no, but like, <laughs> I didn't know it. And she probably didn't either, but we were, had an undying love for each other and we're yeah. together forever. And there was sexual tension, but because there was no conversation around what that even means and looks like they didn't even acknowledge it. Yeah. Which is scary. That's scary to me that we would have kids in our youth group that are mm -hmm. potentially in romantic or even physical. Some mm -hmm. some of the girls that I've talked to, like very physical sexual relationships. And in their mind, because there's no context, they're not doing anything. Yeah. You know, so yeah. there's no one who's really speaking into those areas of their lives. Yeah. 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 They're definitely. Yeah. There needs to be like leadership. Hold on. Yeah. I mean, this is what we do, right? I mean, the, the news be <laughs> Yeah, exactly. This is why what we do is why we exist to do what we yeah. do. <laughs> well, I mean, leadership training specifically on people working with youth and parents on this oh. more narrow specific question of helping teen. And I do want to say, especially girls, not the guys don't need it as well. There's that they have their own issues, but um, help teenage girls walk with walk through this really complex time of their life i i do like the idea of norm the, the the few people i've kind of talked directly to like especially if you're raised in a church and you have these spikes of emotions you're not sure what to do with it and you start getting really freaked out right because you're like wait no mm -hmm. i can't no no you know i can't be that i'm not allowed to be that i just hear negative 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 messaging so that that produces all this anxiety mm -hmm. but to almost normalize it and the word normalize can be taken different directions but like to say no this is a normal human experience let's work through this you're very this is very common this is very natural this is very and, and normal doesn't mean acting on whatever emotion you have is okay sure. it's, you know um but just that alone is say you're you're just a you're a beautiful human being going through what humans go through like it's great you know um it's okay exactly yeah. And having people to really open up to and talk about it, who are going to care about you, not yeah. just because of your story, but because they care about your soul, <laughs> you yeah. know, because they care about you spiritually. I think like, I wish I would have had that kind of messaging or relationship yeah. in my life. And yeah. I think now there is, like you said, there's all of this push to like, well, if you are questioning, then experiment. Like right. that you won't know until you experiment. And it, there's a rush to identify with a label. Yeah. And I think labels are great and can be very helpful. And for some kids, it's very, it is very black and white. And mm. I'm glad that they have labels to explain their experience. But I think, you know, for people who maybe are, aren't sure, for kids that aren't sure, I don't know mm. if labels are always the most helpful. That's actually why. I love the label queer. I love the term queer because it's, it embodies kind of, I don't know yet. And, and it's okay that I feel different because somebody is here looking out for me, who's talking to me and I don't need to go out and sleep with somebody to verify my attraction. Mm -hmm. Hmm. But I think until we're willing to talk, this is, this is the experience when you are sexually attracted to someone. This is what right. happens to your body. This is what happens to you in, in your heart. These are the feelings that, you know, these are the things that you want to do and the feelings that are kind of brought up. How are we to know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny that the term queer, I, I don't, I'm, I'm kind of undecided on that. It's not my, who am I to have an opinion on it, but um, 
it's interesting the tension between older gay and lesbian people Ooh. they typically really don't like the term queer like andrew sullivan oh, yeah, who's like the younger ones love it i know like, andrew is, sullivan says i'm so offended worse. by this term and he even said like uh what do you say queer is the what do you say? Qu- queer is what straight people call themselves when they want access to a minority community or something like that. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're really hard. I don't know if have you talked to an older lesbian about the, like they get, or people in academic, they see it as kind of so tied to like queer theory and this little academic thing, which is brings this whole thing. In. And I, but then other people, like you said, like it, it kind of desexualizes the yes. experience and leaves a little more, because I, I, I do get nervous about airtight black and white boxes, you know, especially with younger people that have the confusion of youth added to this whole journey to have these airtight boxes. Who am I? I am this. And that's who I always will be. It's like you're 14. Like, yeah, let's yeah. hold off on these boxes. So that I think the, the, the queer label, the vagueness or at least the flexibility of it can be helpful there, too. So I, I don't I don't know. It's it, I'm. I'm like in the stands, you know, with my popcorn and watching people <laughs> debate this term and the helpfulness of it. But anyway, well, I think there's like there's no fighting it now. Um, yeah, you know, maybe in the in church context, yeah, you, we can still have the conversation. But in the in the broader LGBTQ conversation, yeah, queer is just a part of the normal vernacular, and yeah. I. I actually had a really fun conversation with Greg Coles about this, who, you know, is like a word nerd (laughs) at his finest. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that there is it reminds me a lot as a minority of some minority Mm. or some terms that were used as derogatory terms in the past that we're kind of we have reclaimed and are using now as a form of camaraderie. So queer, at least. I think at this point, though, it's moving in a different direction is more of an insider term. Um, You know, I I wouldn't necessarily say to a pastor, if you're talking about this uh, from the pulpit, don't say and all those queers, because that's not going to go over. (laughs) Um, Some old white pastor goes talking about the queers. Yeah, no. Please um, don't do it. <laughs> that's how that that's, I, that I, that distinction is really that it's an insider term. So an outsider, yeah. yeah, no, yeah, that's good. Well, we Elizabeth, we've got to talk about kaleidoscope. My gosh, this oh, is a long God. intro. Okay, now yeah. we'll do it. Now we'll do it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you want to know? <laughs> I just tell us if somebody said, "What do you do?" and you say, "I am the co-founder and president of kaleidoscope," and they say, "What's that all about?" Go. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay. So, yeah. So, Kaleidoscope, uh, our our mission and our vision is to really engage with the LGBTQ community with tangible expressions of Christ. <laughs> like, in, in many sense, in, in, yeah, in the most basic sense of it, we're a missions organization that is reaching out to the LGBTQ wow. community at large. Right now, you know, centered in New York, but our hope is to see it really spread um, mm-hmm. and yeah, and grow because we we would identify the LGBTQ community as an unreached people group in okay. many ways, uh, very similar in, in in the way that we talk about other unreached people groups. Um, we don't have a lot of what Meg and I, who is the co-founder mm-hmm. with me, have really like seen. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of what we call like indigenous LGBTQ leadership okay. who's then go. So when we think about missions, right? Like 
the hope is that you go into a community, you love on them, you share the gospel and word and deed, you start to, to build this community centered on Christ, and that you're able to step back and let those people create the context of their faith that makes sense to them, and that there's leadership that's brought up from the inside. And that's our hope is that, you know, even though all of us are people who are, would identify as a part of the community, we don't want to be, we're not creating an empire. Um, and yeah. we don't want to, to just train pastors and other Christian leaders to be good witnesses, though it is essential, uh, to the spread of the gospel. We really want to help also empower LGBTQ Christians to mm -hmm. go back out into their community and do the same. I have a soft, or no, actually, no, I have a hard question for you. Is I literally never thought about this, but given everything you're saying, in my anecdotal experience, I'm not going to name any names, um, but I have oh, three, three names. I have <laughs> no, three names kidding. in particular. Um, well, okay, no, I, I can name that. There's, um, I can name at least at least two. When I think of people who were converted, like the people you're trying to reach then they convert to mm -hmm, Christianity. Mm -hmm. They, if they were steeped in the unchurched, non-Christian LGBT community for years, whatever, then they get saved. Sometimes their approach to these questions ends up being very conservative. I'm thinking like Rosaria Butterfield, Chris Yuan, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm, several others. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's my question? Um, is, is that, is that good? I mean, is that so that, or, or even, I know a lot of, um, uh, people who are maybe converted who would have more of like almost like an ex-gay narrative now. Like it's almost like, wait, yeah, are you yeah. into repair to therapy? Or it's like the, 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 the conversion was so clean, a clean break, black and white that yeah. those converts typically we get really not excited about something like revoice or more of a side B kind of whatever. Would you say, Hey, that's, that's the work Jesus is going to do among the leaders. And that's then, go for it? Or would you yeah. get nervous about that kind of um, experience? I don't know. I mean, obviously I don't love it. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I am not, I am not, have never been and will never be in favor of any type of conversion therapy. Right. Yeah. I find it to be very destructive um, and harmful. Uh, we don't handle anything else like that in the church. So I right. don't know why this is the one area. But you need to add something. You know, I, named, I named some names. So I, I do have to add some clarification because there's thousands yeah. of people listening to this. Um, I am not at all yeah. saying Rosario, Chris Yuan or others no, advocate yeah, for that. Sure. Um, I do know they're very much against like a revoice. I, I think that's public. That's not a yeah. surprise. Yeah. And I, I would say personally, I've learned a ton from both of Chris, Rosario, that um, more conservative approach to these questions. Um, we've obviously hold to the same theology. We disagree on several things, um, which is fine, but I, I really, I'm not saying anything now. I think they have contributed great to this discussion in many sure. ways. So, yeah. yeah. I think everybody, you know, hopefully we can see the good and, and a lot of what other people bring, despite maybe the theological differences or different approaches. Um, and I think that's another distinction in our ministry is that we don't really front line and we don't really talk heavily about theology because that's not our, that's not our goal. That's not really what we're doing. We're really grateful for people like you, Preston, who are having 
like very deep and complex theological conversations and debates about this and really engaging with church leadership on uh, and and just Christian, you know, yeah. academics on that level. Yeah. However, our heart is the people on the ground. Yeah. You know what I mean? So because of that, we have people from various theological backgrounds. We have people who are uh, in same-sex relationships. We have people who are committed to celibacy. Mm -hmm. And our approach is there's room at the table for everyone to experience the goodness of God. Mm -hmm. You know, so so we we're not a church. We're not um we're not officiating any weddings. We're not, you know, right. doing anything like that. However, we feel like there is no service that we're doing to LGBTQ folks if we say oh, we don't have the same theological conclusion mm -hmm. about marriage, go go find somebody else. Yeah, I yeah. never want to leave an LGBTQ person out in the cold spiritually with nowhere to turn. You yeah. know what I mean? Like I, I, we want to be there for, for everyone. Um, and it, so, so all that to say, I think now we're experiencing something a little different, a different approach. Uh, where a lot of LGBTQ people who are coming to faith, they don't necessarily see it as an exclusive experience where I now I have to be ex-gay. I mm -hmm. think they want to say, well, what do I do with this very real reality mm -hmm. that I've experienced? Um, many, most people who are LGBTQ, they don't they don't have the the experience where they pray and then they're not. Right, they right, don't right. have some sex attraction right. anymore. They're not transgender anymore. Like that, yeah. that's not the common experience. Yeah. So they want to be able to reconcile the two. And I think that, you know, thankfully we and other, you know, hopefully other churches and organizations like us can provide opportunities for, mm -hmm. for LGBTQ people to tell their story yeah. um, and to be leaders in really significant ways. Yeah. So you're, it's, um, I mean, you said a missionary organization, but it's not, I guess it is evangelistic, but you're saying it's more like embodied love is the evangelism, not so much, I don't want to say like not leading people to Christ, but. Um, I mean, it, how would, it's how definitely you, both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I like to focus more on the kind of living with people and being an example and kind of loving your neighbor as yourself and, and all of those things. Um, but we also, so that's a big part of what we do. Um, but we also like do like straight up old school evangelism okay. where we're going out on the streets in New York in prevalent LGBTQ communities. So wow. places like Hell's Kitchen, um, like the West village, um, where Stonewall is uh, and yeah. other like historical LGBTQ sites. And we set up tables and we engage with people around the gospel. Wow. So it, it's so fun, Preston. It is so fun because of the cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Also. Like people are like, wait a minute, you're, you're here telling us about Jesus. Like I thought you guys hated us. Like I thought Christians didn't want to have anything to do with us. Why are you here? Yeah. Wanting to love us, it's it's amazing. It's really do fun. they do they get? I mean, maybe I need to envision more of what you're doing because I would imagine that, especially in New York City or any kind of more progressive city, 
when you start saying we're a Christian, we're going to tell you about Jesus. And if they're queer, LGBTQ plus, um, they'd be like, almost like, it seems like they, they wouldn't they get like annoyed at that or like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, or, or is it, are they interested in saying, well, wait, tell me more. Like, are they generally interested in like, how, how are you a Christian coming here and wanting to love on me? Like it, I get, I'm not, I'm not phrasing this right. <laughs> it's not, I'm, I'm asking a question. So it's not a turnoff that you are a Christian in their space. Cause I can imagine some context where that would just be a turnoff. Yeah. I, I have not experienced any like backlash, any kind of negative responses ever. It's funny. The people who tend to ask me that question of like, well, do they even like that you're there? Like, aren't they turned off by the fact that you would be talking about Jesus's love? It's really only Christians who ask me that, which is funny because it, it to me, it shows me there is a true openness in the LGBTQ community that yeah. like we don't always see, yeah. you know, yeah. we're not always considering, but the reality is people are like, oh, like, tell me more or mm -hmm. Yeah, I used to go to church and then I came out and, you know, my parents kicked me out of the home or I knew my church wouldn't mm. listen to my story. So I just left. So now they're looking for outlets to say, OK, mm. what would it look like for me to follow Jesus? Like, wow. really? So it's been it's been awesome uh, to see like yeah. nothing but really positive responses from the queer community. Does I mean, I would imagine the conversation would go fairly quickly to like sexual ethics that is that true and not nope, so much that's all yeah so that again that's another question i think i hear a lot from the church perspective which is yeah. great like i'm glad people ask me because now i get the opportunity yeah. to say uh to your audience like no i i have never done outreach like street evangelism and had anyone ask me well what's your Huh. Where do you stand on the, you know, or anything like that? Not once. Um, and I think maybe twice have I had anyone um, that I've been like walking with ask me anything about it. Wow. Like for the most part, that's because for, for us, it tends to be a primary issue, you know, like it tends to be like, that's where our minds always go. I think mm -hmm. in the Christian world, one second, sorry, my computer <laughs> got issues, got issues over there. I know. And there's, you know, whatever oh. people are working on the door. So tell me if it gets too loud. Um, uh. But yeah, I think that's where our minds always go. It's like, mm. well, but what what do you yeah. think about marriage? What do you think about marriage? And people, because it's embodied experience, yeah. like we're talking about a lifetime of experience, of attraction, of culture that's embedded in, in people's lives, though I don't want to dismiss the questions about um marriage equality or you know same-sex partnership like it is a it is a huge part of this conversation but it's it's really not 
in the way that I think many Christians would assume it is. Like that's not an upfront deal breaker for a conversation to happen. Where, where do you stand? And then we can go from there kind of thing. No. Oh, and, and also I think people, people just recognize that there's more to the experience. We know there's more to the experience yeah. than just who should I marry? Can I marry? Right. What does it look like to get married? What does God think about marriage? I mean, so many LGBTQ people are single. Like that, that's not where their minds are going. Huh. You know, there's your experience is your experience. Like we were saying about youth, despite what you've done or who, yeah. where you've experimented or who you're dating, it's a part of your identity. Mm -hmm. um, so I, no one really, though it's a, it's a topic. It's not yeah. really a primary focus of conversation. Well, it, they, I mean, people just want to know if they can be loved in, in my, well, I have both some data and also anecdotal experience. The data, according to the Marin study from several years ago, right? 80, 3% of LGBT people were raised in a church, Fifty, about 50% 50 leave the church after 18. And when they were asked why they left, only 3% said the number one reason why I left the church was because of the theology of marriage and sexuality. The top five reasons they list had to do with like hypocrisy in the church. They were kicked out when they came out as gay. They, um, the leaders, there's a disconnect between leaders and all of these things are relational tensions that they've had with the church. So that's and that's a large study. 1,712 LGBT people were surveyed. Um, in my anecdotal experience, it's funny because I ask you the question, but in my anecdotal experience, it's typically either very progressive or very conservative straight Christians who want to know right up front. You know, most of my pastors exactly. are getting emails from people. Hey, where do you stand on same-sex marriage? You know, not, I don't, I mean, this is, this isn't a literal statistic, but it seems like nine times out of 10, it's typically a, a more hyper progressive or, or it might be a conservative saying, you know, you're not a liberal church, are you, you know? Um, but almost in every case, it's a straight person who kind of has a, you know, they might be very on, on the more progressive side, very, very justice minded. And, and I can't go to a racist church. I don't want to go to a homophobic church. And they kind of draw the line around the, the theological question. So, um, all that to say, you're as shocking as it may as your experience may sound to me. As I look back, I'm like, no, that's actually that's not that's actually not too shocking <laughs> to hear that. Yeah, and I think that like at Kaleidoscope, we really benefit from the fact that we're parachurch, so mm -hmm. we're not being asked the same like. Yeah. You know, we're, we're not having the same kind of conversations with people. And we also have the freedom, you know, to be, to experiment a little bit more with how we, with what our messaging looks like and how to truly contextualize because our audience is not the church right. um, where, you know, for, for pastors or churches, understandably you have to consider your denomination. You have to consider right. your congregants. You have to do, consider all of these things. And I think for us, you know, we really focus on, on how do we really, how do we best communicate the truth of the gospel in mm -hmm. word and in deed to the LGBTQ community. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully Christians, we, we've found many Christians and many churches and pastors who want to get on board and, and help us do yeah. that. Um, but if, if people don't like it, 
there's nothing I can do about it. I, I think yeah. we do tend to stir up some controversy sometimes, but I, I like that. I, I don't nothing. I, I can't imagine Elizabeth <laughs> being in a ministry where it's controversial. I don't know how to handle that. <laughs> um, he, so, so you would see yourself as, I mean, you're on the front lines of helping people experience the tangible, tangible love of Jesus Maybe that they haven't experienced that before. Maybe they're even raised in a church and hadn't experienced that before. You wouldn't is, tell me if I'm correct. Like you wouldn't see your job really as kind of the long-term discipleship questions that they may have. Like, and and is that why you, while you hold to a certain sexual ethic, it's not like that's a primary thing you're trying to introduce people to because you're just trying to get the conversation going. Um, would that would that be a, a correct way of seeing it? Whereas a past, whereas a pastor does need to ask questions about where are we as a church and what does discipleship look like and what does membership look like and who can serve on leadership. Like they act, they do have to ask that those more maybe further down the road discipleship questions. Whereas you're saying you don't. That's not really the space you're in. Or yeah, I think it's less the like the long game because like we would I I would say we're definitely in it for long-term discipleship like we don't want to just see people come to faith and then sit, drop our hands and say you know okay go and hopefully you'll find a church or community like you know we're here to to live lives with people for as long as they want discipleship and community I think uh, the biggest difference again is that we're not functioning at a church in the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. People are not coming to us because they want to, you know, have, have us or um, officiate their wedding or people aren't coming to us because they want to know our, our doctrinal statement. You know, it's just a very different approach. And I think, honestly, again, I think it's such a blessing because it's so refreshing Mm -hmm. for the LGBTQ population to interact with Christians who are not just there to say, love this, to who are not there to say, love the sinner, hate the sin, to say, well, I need you to really understand how much God hates your partnership before. And not that that's what all Christians do. It just, yeah, that's not our, that's not our posture. Like we're, we're just not in the game for any of that, you know? Yeah. I I have a, here's another question or maybe a thought slash question. And it's in the context of, I, I, I love the way, what you're doing really. I mean, and you're in spaces that most Christians wouldn't have a clue how how to do this. When I hear, and I'm not even saying, well, I, I, I would love to hear if you would, if you would say this, like when people say, you know what, we just really, really want to focus just on Jesus. We don't really want to talk about sexual ethics. I, I, I would, I guess I'd push on a little bit because following our sexuality is such a huge part of our humanity. And, and the, I don't know if we can separate sexual ethics from following Jesus. Like part of how we follow Jesus is what we, how we steward our bodies. Like that's a really basic part of what it means to follow Jesus, um, how, how would you navigate that? Like, I don't know, like if somebody saw me, this Jesus person seems really fascinating. I grew up in the church and I never heard about this kind of Jesus and you're loving me and I thought you hated me and I want to explore yeah. this more. I want to go down the road. It it seems like it would be, I don't know, not helpful to just kind of push aside. Well, no, you can kind of go wherever you want with sexual ethics. Like, 
Yeah. That yeah. just doesn't seem to resonate. I don't know. Like Jesus doesn't seem to do that. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think you're going to get me in trouble, Preston, but that's okay. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> and if I, 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 and I, no, no. I don't bring people on it's the podcast. So like, I'm not trying to corner. It's a genuine yeah, genuine question. <laughs> no, it's a it's a great question. I I'm I'm really I love it. I I think I think a lot of things about this. First, mm. I think that um, the way that we approach things isn't necessarily parsing out or saying that we don't talk about sexual ethic yeah. at all. The biggest thing I would say is that we, that is not how we start the conversation. That's not where the conversation starts. It's not where the conversation lives. Okay. Um, that's fair. We're willing, and and I'll, I'll say from my perspective, I'm willing to accept the fact that people are going to have different, come to different theological conclusions than I do on many different things. Like I, I once said to somebody, I would not be surprised if when I go to heaven, I was 98, 99% wrong on all of my theology. And the only thing I was right on was, you know, that the fact that I'm present with the Lord because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It very well might happen. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so I'm not saying, I I guess what, what I am saying is I think some of these theological differences culturally we have turned into um first like frontline issues where i would say they're probably in my mind they're more secondary issues so i have met many affirming pastors and many affirming friends who i could not honestly say oh well they're not christian because they're affirming like no i see like God's presence in their Mm. lives. I see the fruit of, of the Holy spirit and we come to a different theological conclusion and that is going to, there might cause some distance there in different things, but for the most part, I respect you and love you as a brother and a sister in Christ. Um, and I would say the same with a lot of the people that we, we minister to again, I would rather be a home and a space where people can, ask questions Mm -hmm. and people can feel like, like there are other people who are invested in their spiritual well-being than to say, well, unless you follow this particular sexual ethic, then you can't be a part of this community. I just don't see the benefit of it, particularly in my context, in our context. And I don't really think that that's how Jesus operated. I think, yes, there are parts there are things within the gospel where we do see like, you know, the sheep and the wolves being separated and, and, you know, the, the weeds and the, and the wheat. And there, there is some kind of like gleaning, but in my interpretation, a lot of that has to do with salvation Mm -hmm. and uh, issues of like justice. And, you know, I would say, yeah, issues of justice. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I don't really see like, for, for example, Bruce Miller, I was reading his book, uh, yeah. guiding the church in a time of sexual questioning and, or leading the church in a time of sexual questioning. And a section that he was sharing, um, was outlining the story of the woman at the well. Mm-hmm. And he had said, you know, the way that Jesus approached this woman 
wasn't that first of all he didn't necessarily like call her out on her sin though that's how we tend to to look at or at least that's how i grew up looking at it just like oh you 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 don't have one husband i know because you got a lot of men at home that wasn't really the approach he was inviting this woman to share her story with him like it was an invitation um and and an invitation i think with grace and humility um, but then when he said to the woman, like, what I'm offering you is living water, he didn't say with the caveat that you leave all of those men that you were with. Like that that wasn't a part of the conversation. It was, I'm going to offer you living water. Obviously, we would all conclude that what God didn't want was this woman to then go back and live this like terrible life of sin and selfishness. But what he was offering her at the moment was living water that she then accepted. And then what Bruce was sh- had said was she was the first missionary. Yeah. She went back to her community and was like, hey, let me tell you about this Jesus figure who offered me living water. He's the Messiah that even our community has been waiting for. And we see a community come to faith. Mm-hmm. And there's no the the authors of the gospel didn't make it a point to say and she lived happily ever after with one husband yeah so again i think like in our society or in our cultural context here and now we we really want to have like that bow yeah wrapping up the story really well and i think unfortunately a lot of a lot of what's happening in our conversation around lgbtq identity and faith doesn't always have a nice bow that can be, you know, wrapped around it and make it look pretty. There's there's a lot of a stickiness and and gray areas, but I hope that it the grayness of some of our conversations doesn't stop us from loving people the way yeah. that we know Christ loved others. Right, right. Preaching girl. (laughs) I got a lot of, I got a lot of thoughts. I got to jump in here and I I would, I resonate with so much of what you're saying. I, I I really mean that. And I, um, with the woman at the well, I want to kind of pull the rug out from underneath all of that, but in a way that you're going to appreciate she's, we think of her as promiscuous. She's a victim of a male-dominated patriarchal culture on, where she was Preston. where she was tossed to and fro from man to man. We read this through the lens of like, oh, she's just sleeping around with all these men. No, she was yes. abused, maybe even literally, but I mean, just like she was taken advantage of. So I don't even see her as like, oh, Jesus encountering the super sinful woman. I see him encountering a woman with piles of shame and, and victimhood here. Um, we, once you read it through the first century Jewish Samaritan context, it's like, yeah, women yes. didn't get the divorce their husband. That was a man, something men yes. did. Women. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that, that's part of it too. Yeah. Do we really think that she had the luxury of going back right. and say like, excuse me, all of you men that yeah. I have been like, in relationships <laughs> with or benefiting off of because I have no freedom in the society, I'm going to exercise my own autonomy yeah. and walk away from it. Like, yeah, no, that's yeah. not the way that society worked at the right. time. And what I love about what you just said is that we have to understand the story of the woman to right. really understand the context, not only of her experience of Jesus, her experience of living water, like how deep is this living water for this woman, but also the difficulty that she was walking back into. 
Like yeah. it would be unfair. And I think a very like, you know, unfair and lazy read if we just assume that like, and she lived happily ever after. That's not how life works right, for right. any of us. So I think with LGBTQ folks, we also have to look at it the same way. Like there's a depth of story here. Again, mm -hmm. this is not just about who somebody yeah. wants to marry or not. Right, this right, is right. not just about who's, who somebody wants to have sex with or not. Yeah. This is there's a there's family dynamics, there's cultural dynamics, there's story, there's life yeah, that yeah. needs to be like shifted through and only the Holy Spirit, you know, through his, his faithful servants, but only the Holy Spirit can do that work. It's yeah. not up to me. Yeah. I 100% agree. And and what um there's so much like deconstruction that often has to happen when somebody who's LGBTQ is reintroduced or introduced to Jesus. Like there's so many layers and layers and layers that to kind of introduce sexual ethic or marriage so quickly would just be, none of that is even going to make any sense until they have a completely deconstructed and reconstructed view of who Jesus actually is. So everything is downstream from understanding who Jesus is, having that encounter with Jesus, understanding Jesus in light of the biblical story, um, sexual ethics only makes sense once people understand it. So I am not, I, I, I'm not, um, at all saying that, um, man, yeah, we need a first, second, even third conversation. All right, now let's get to sexual ed. Like I, I, I think that's been yeah, utterly yeah. unhelpful. Um, especially when sure. straight people haven't really understood some of the, the decades of just walls that have been that the church has erected between the church and the LGBT community all the way back from Stonewall to the AIDS crisis and the moral majority. And there's just so much, we need to be better missionaries. If we went in, it's almost like, and I've used this analogy before, it's a, it's an extreme analogy. So that it's not a one-on-one, -on -one, but if we're almost in some ways are like German missionaries to Israel in 1951, <laughs> if we have no clue about what just happened a few years earlier between Germans and Jews, yeah, we might need to understand that and unpack that before we say, hi, my name's, you know, Franz, and I'm here to tell you about my German Jesus, how it may come out. Like, no, 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 no. We, we need to back up and understand the context we're living in. So, um, yeah, I, I would, I guess, and, and you and I may disagree on this is totally fine. Um, once we, I guess I would still see how we steward our bodies not as a, a secondary issue. I don't like primary, secondary, like there's two kind of camps, but you know, when I read the new, so going back to Jesus, you know, when Jesus is, when he's ministering to other Jews and, and confronting them, this, that, and reaching out to the margin, there's kind of a, an established sexual ethic that everybody agreed upon. Like that was never in dispute within Judaism. So it's not like he needed to kind of introduce them to, you know, um, all right, to follow me, here's what it looks like. But Paul did, you know, Paul's going into Greco-Roman context where Christianity had a really, really distinct countercultural, I would say humanizing sexual ethics so that this is why in Paul's letters, when he's going into the Greco-Roman communities and you have recent converts where he's constantly dealing with questions of sexual ethics. And, and this is where I would say that's more parallel to our context. Um, and I, I just don't like, and then when I look at all the statements in the New Testament about what it means to follow Jesus, to be a convert, and and how often and sometimes how quickly and how serious questions about sexual immorality uh, do come up. That that's where once we do get to that place of okay, they're down to road of discipleship. They want to follow him. I would say this is 
what that looks like. And, and that, you know, everybody's going to draw the line. Everybody has a sexual ethic. So they're going to draw the line somewhere. And that's where I'm going to say, yeah, I mean, I do think that what it means to follow Jesus is going to, this is what that looks like. Not, well, here's various options to take whatever path you want to choose, you know, um, not that yeah. I, I'm putting words in your mouth. That's not what you said. Yeah, but. no, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that that's my approach. I, I don't say, you know, you know, pick from the choose your own adventure. Yeah. But I, I think I, at least from my experience, what, when, when there is, when, when the Lord presents opportunities and when there are these these convert very difficult conversations surrounding where well what does it look like for you with your own mm-hmm. biblical interpretation and what would that how would you then instruct me mm-hmm. i mean they are not easy right, <laughs> you know yeah. it is not they have been some of the most deepest and most painful conversations i have um but again, I think that there's there's so much to somebody's life and story and journey mm-hmm. to following Jesus in, in the way that we steward our bodies and the way that we steward our minds and the, like all of the different sure. elements that, you know, I've I've seen not only grace for myself from the Lord, but I've seen grace from other people who yeah. like I'm asking them to count the cost in ways that I don't have to count. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah. sure. I, sure. I, you know, identify in the community, but I'm a woman married to a man. Like I, <laughs> I don't, can I say that I have sex on this podcast? Not on theology and Iran. Like, no, I have never. sex and I, <laughs> yeah. oh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> but you know what I mean? So, so to tell somebody and I'm married, like, so to tell somebody you know, I, I don't think that this is the path that God has for you. That's it's not an easy th- conversation to have with somebody. It's, so yeah. that being said, I don't think that that means you can never have it or that it isn't important. I just think the way that we also steward the conversations and, sure. and see it as a journey, as opposed to a, you know, like you said, uh, a third conversation or even a fourth conversation. Um, I think matters, but I think even more than that, I have, and this one sometimes I think can be misunderstood as well. Like I I think because of my approach, sometimes people leave and say, oh, well, she's not really, she, she doesn't really hold a traditional Mm -hmm. sexual ethic because if she did, she would be more opposed. I, I can assure you that I do. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> However, yeah. I've never done it. <laughs> I'm not saying that you think that. I'm just, yeah. just to, the caveat. And I think, I think something that we as the church and myself included have not really put my trust in very often is the work of the Holy Spirit yeah. in people's lives, including my own. I believe that, and I have, I really believe that what God needs from me is to defend him defend the Christian way, defend Christian morality, um, both inside and outside of the church. Because if I don't do it, if we don't do it, then the truth of the gospel is going to collapse. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the, not only the testimony of the gospel, but also the truth of the gospel itself. Like, then what are we even believing in anymore? If we're staunchly telling people, you know, this is how you should live your life in this way or that. And I think over the years, what I've 
learned and then have seen is that transformation in someone's life is not up to me. It is up Mm -hmm. to the work of the Holy Spirit. I cannot convince someone of anything. Mm -hmm. So the example of the uh, young lady I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, when she came to faith, and she, she was dating uh, a girl at the time. And all I wanted to do was to tell her, this is not good for you. Break up with this girl. It's a terrible relationship. And I, I said once to her, because she asked, you know, what, what do you think God would have for me? And I don't think this relationship is really where God wants you right now. Mm-hmm. And she listened and she said, okay. I'm still going to date this girl. And I had to just, I had to say, okay, like, what am I going to do? And I I went back to my husband and I'm crying. And I was, I want to tell her again, like, uh, maybe we'll invite her over the night that she's going to go out on this date. Cause I knew what night her next date was. So I was like, let's invite her over and try to convince her to not go on the date and all that. And my husband was like, it's not your job, Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. Like, do you trust that, that you believe in a God that, that like supersedes any of the efforts that you could ever make? Do you believe in a God that like calls us into his mm-hmm. presence, that speaks to us, who is long suffering, who, who transforms our lives and our desires and our hearts and our wills and our way? Like, do you really believe in that? Then you said your piece and now you also mm-hmm. need to let it go and trust that God is going to do what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, my husband didn't say, trust that God is going to make her have her be single. Trust that God isn't going to let her go on any dates. It was just to trust that the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. is going to be present and loves her more than I could ever love her. Yeah. So I, I listened and I, I didn't say anything. And then the day of her next date, it was a Sunday. We were all at church together. She, she joined us for church. And I, I was like, okay, you want to come over to my house? <laughs> she said, no, I have plans with my girlfriend. And then picks up her phone, looks at her phone and said, oh, my girlfriend canceled. She's sick. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I didn't really want to go on the date anyway. And then after that, never saw the girl again. Like that was the end of the relationship. And it, mm-hmm. I, I don't give that example to say, and that's how God no, is totally. always going to work. Yeah. But t- it was a testimony to mm-hmm. me that like, oh, when, when God really wants to do a work in someone's life, mm-hmm. it's not up to me to do the job. Right. Like, it's not up to me to convince anyone. If he is truly good, then his goodness will be compelling. Yeah. And I believe that. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you, and I'm you know practically that's how I operate. I'm just not a, I don't know, not a very controversial, not confrontive kind of person or whatever. It, it's for what I wrestle with is, well, first of all, I mean it's been shown like like people have to kind of come to a conclusion on their own. Like a lot of just even psychologists have shown like you can't force feed belief. Like somebody else has to be convinced of it. If you're trying to convince them and you strong arm them and okay, fine, I'll comply. That's not going to produce lasting obedience. Like they do have to come to something on their own. I just, I do wrestle with the tension of absolutely God's the one doing the work, but we are agents of God too, called to, 
I don't know, mm-hmm. come alongside. And, and for me too, I, and this is for me, like there's, I, I often see inconsistency in my own heart of like, Oh, you know, this, they're living this way and I'll let God deal with that. But then if I turn around, like if I was say one of my friend was a, just a blatant racist or something and you know, I'm like, well, mm-hmm. no, that's mm-hmm. not a, allowed. Or if somebody was, you know, maybe they were just having like an adulteress or if they're sleeping with their neighbor's wife, like I'm going to say, dude, like you're not, that's not the Christian way. You got to stop it. You're, I mean, look at all the, and people say, well, yeah, those yeah. are sins that are hurting others. And these are private sins that aren't hurting others. I just don't see that distinction really in the Bible, like sins that hurt others and sins that don't, or mm-hmm. I don't know. So I, I feel like there are certain things that if somebody was living this way, I'd be like, oh no, 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 no. Yeah. We can't be doing this if you're doing that. Like in other sure, sins, sure. I strike my shoulders. Ah, all right. You, you know, you kind of overspend money, don't care about the poor and ah, whatever, you know, <laughs> but it's like, I don't know. Does the Bible make that distinction? Like, how do I get the right to make the distinction between sins that I would really hold people to and others that yeah. I'm like, and eh, let God do the work on them, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know. It's, I, yeah. I do think- you wrestle? I mean, that, I, I, and I truly wrestle with that. Like, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I live in consistency in that way. There are certain things I would not tolerate other things where I'm like, yeah, I do, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would find, I would say, I find Paul's, Paul's approach to, to sin and to morality very clear, and you know, so, like, I, I, I can't argue with Paul, you know, but, but I also would say Paul had a very distinct setness or calling. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean then that that sins are, you know, irrelevant or that we should approach, um, right living as, you know, something that can be interpreted. However, I don't think that everyone's job within Christendom is to be Paul. Like Paul was establishing the first century church, Hmm. you know, all like in the, the known world, like that's a, that's a very different call than what I have. Hmm. Um, so, so not again, not that that means that I don't have to hold the same ethic or this hold the standards that I feel like Paul has blatantly said, like absolutely, or hold or hope and encourage other people to do the same. I do. However, I don't think that I need to be the end all be all voice of someone's like life. And I, I understand what you're saying, like not making the distinction Though, like, I, I do think if somebody is having an affair, they're not not that that sins are on some kind of scale in terms of yeah. how God sees them. But if someone's having an affair, we're just talking about a totally different story than if someone's like casually dating someone of the same gender. Like it. I'm not saying that one sin is greater than the other, bigger than the other. It's just a different narrative. You just can't approach everything the same way. Yeah. And I feel like the the affair, anyway, we we were getting lost way deep in the weeds, but like an affair does seem to be kind of a a universal, like this is clearly sin to the person. Everybody knows it's wrong. Everybody knows it's wrong. The most secular atheist knows it's wrong. Like that's just wrong. Right. Um, and same thing in the, like in the first century, um, adultery was illegal. Like Rome for all its immorality yeah. was on the same page with adultery. Well, they were more, men can have adultery. Well, no, no, men, men can get away with having sex as long as it's not somebody else's 
spouse, but that was because mm-hmm. women were believed to be owned by the man. And you're more offending the man that you're sleeping with his wife than you are, you know, so it's, it had its own misogyny built into it. But um, whereas, you know, in, in 2022 in America, dating somebody the same sex, the person might not even have the same kind of like moral framework where they know this is absolutely wrong. That doesn't mean it's not wrong, but I understand your point that we are comparing maybe two sins, but two sins of different, different kinds of sins. I don't know. It's just, it's different situationally. It's just a different. Yeah. And I, and I would say the same thing, you know, historically too, which this might get me in trouble as well, (laughs) but, (laughs) but you know, if we're, we, we have to consider what was happening at the time when Paul was, was giving these kind of these, these rules and regulations to the church. And I think what, uh, same sex relation, I I can't even call it same sex relationships, same sex behaviors, or I hate to say homosexual behaviors, but for lack of a better term in a biblical context was not the same as what, in terms of like it's societal norm, it didn't function the same way that it's functioning now. Does that, that mean that now it's right and then it was wrong or vice versa? No, that's not what I'm saying. But what, what I'm saying is Paul was talking in the context that he was. So I think the way and the nature of the conversation had to be different from the way and the nature that the conversation can be had today. Mm. You know, like then a par- part of the conversation or part of the elements of of what was going on was also chat like relation uh, sexual intimacy with children you know like we were basically like pedophilia and things like that and again i'm not saying then oh so then all things are permissible now by no means but what i'm saying is i can understand some more of the urgency and we're also talking about um you know cultural context where orgies were part of worshiping east um uh, ancient near eastern gods so there are like all of these different aspects in play so the way that paul's going to address it i would imagine if paul was coming today you know he would have the same message but i think the way and and how it's addressed is going to obviously depend on the cultural context that that we're in yeah I would push back on a lot of that, but I think you do so much. <laughs> oh, I want you to. I want you to. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to get lost. No, I, I, I hear what you're, I do. Yes. Why? Well, I, w- I would, no. Yes. There, there's definitely, diff- there, there's over there. There's, there's similarities. There's, there's differences. Um, certainly same sex relationships in the ancient world. They took a wide diversity of forms. Um, yes, yes, pederasty yes. was a dominant form among males, um, not exclusive but dominant. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know the or, yeah orgies and prostitution and, and slaves raping their or masters raping their slaves and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't see that among women in the ancient world. This is something that when people bring that up, I'm like, yeah, but all that doesn't really apply to female relations which were almost exclusively same social status adults, even like marriage, like relationships. Yeah. So, um, which, and even the first century, re- 
first century Rome was no. I have to interrupt. Yeah. If if you don't mind, I just want to make an interesting point within the Jewish tradition Uh that that cultural context that you just talked about for women. That's why in many of like Jewish kind of thought around queer theology, it's women same sex relationships are absolutely and completely permissible because there isn't there wasn't the same cultural kind of standard or, or yeah. experience. So I yeah. just thought that that was an interesting fact. Well, you even you even have that in later rabbinic literature. This is hundreds of years after the New Testament, but um, you do see rabbis coming down softer on mm-hmm. female same sex relations. Yeah, because in the Jewish well, in the ancient context, sex meant penetration. So, and there's yes. even some weird like um, this is actually I, I this is I I love ancient the ancient context. Um, you even have weird like uh poets and stuff that they didn't know what to do with women having sex like how are they having sex like there's no penetrate like what's going on they, they would come up to, <laughs> these men would sit around and come up with these wild ideas of what women were doing with each other but um yeah so even even in some forms of ancient judaism by ancient i mean still later than the new testament the rabbis did seem to come they still thought it was wrong but it wasn't nearly as wrong as a man penetrating sure, another sure. man or something but um, yes yeah anyway yeah no i there are definitely there's an overlap. There's similarities and differences between sexuality in the ancient world and, and today. Um, but you were going to push back. Well, um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, when people, there were a wide variety of different forms that same sex relationships took in the ancient world. Oh, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So that we can't say it was all this or all that. No, and, um, totally. And even like a pedersty wasn't quite pedophilia. It was an older man having sexual relations with like a teenage boy, typically after adolescence, before they grew a beard. And some people say, well, that's what Paul saw wrong was the age difference. I'm like, well, male female relations had massive age differences. Like if what Paul saw wrong was, oh no, we can't have a 10 year gap here. It's like, well, that's how marriage just existed back then. 30 year old men married 14 year old girls all the time. So, and there's no, Paul never, there's lots of Greek words for pederasty and Paul never uses those he uses generic male female um but yeah certainly when paul was thinking of same-sex relationships probably the majority of images that popped into his mind would be very um yeah debaucherous is that the um or or really yeah well and i would say it would it would definitely be broader than the way that we talk about it now and i think yeah it's it's just yeah I, we could go on and on about yeah. some of the different things yeah. in terms of like consent and, but it does like, again, all that to say, it doesn't change right. what God's ultimate plan is or right. where right. I land theologically. It doesn't change. It just, I, I think we tend to feel like, again, we have to defend a sexual ethic first and foremost, or that it, it really is um, a question of salvation mm-hmm. and, and I would, I would want to push back on that a little bit to say, like, let's not let this ish, this issue always be uh, so divisive. Hmm. But what are ways that we can come, all come to the table, and we can all trust that the Holy Spirit is going to do what the Holy Spirit does best um, in transforming lives. Yeah, I've yeah. seen it myself. So yeah. you know, it's not always perfect, but. Yeah. It is perfect, actually. It is always perfect. <laughs> it's not the way I always see it, today, yeah. but it is always perfect. Well, Elizabeth, I, I, I planned an hour, and I've taken you an hour and almost 40 minutes. So uh, thank you. Oh, like, I, 
Thank you for what you do. I really enjoyed the conversation and you're living in spaces that I think few Christians would want to go, which is sad, but would even know how to go. So I'm really excited about what you guys are doing out there. Seriously. Um, Thank you. Thanks. And I think, you know, it's definitely uncharted waters. And for us, we don't, I, I will confidently say that I am not always confident (laughs) in all of my approaches of the way that I do things. Um, But I'm so thankful that I have a God that is bigger than my, my understanding and my confidence. And I've seen him, I've seen him do great things. So I really appreciate, thanks for supporting the work. And I'm excited to see how, you know, what else God is going to do is he, there's definitely a movement. There's something happening, you know, in the church around these conversations. And I believe outside of the church, um, you know, seeing people come to faith in Jesus who are part of this community. don't Don't be afraid to make mistakes, take risks, learn, regroup, you know, I do it every single day, man. <laughs> like you can't, you can't grow if you don't take some risks and say, Hey, I, I think this is the right thing. And later say, yeah, that, you know, that maybe I wouldn't do that again. But if, yeah, I mean, I don't need, I'm preaching to the choir. I mean, your whole ministry is one huge <laughs> messy risk, you know? So, um, yeah. Thank you. Thankful for Thank what you do. You know, Appreciate for it. The encouragement. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. And yeah. Well, we'll see. I, I'm, I'm already like seeing the fruit and it, it's going to be, it's a wild ride, but mm-hmm. Jesus seems to always call us on these wild rides, yeah, doesn't yeah. he? Like it's never just so cut and dry. I wish it was. <laughs> but that would be boring if it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. I could take a little lull every now and again. <laughs> well, thanks for the, the privilege to be able to talk with you, Preston. My it was pleasure. Really awesome. My pleasure. It was an honor. Yeah. yeah. All right. Take care. Sweet. God bless.